0: I did want to ask you about chickens, but I think we can move on to... No, don't ask me about chickens. <laughs> are you still really sad about the chickens? I am,
1: I'm sad. You know, I've, I've got four little animals um, that, that wandered around our garden and now there are no little animals that wandered around our garden. And it's kind of a mis- not a mistake, but not to lock them up better in, in the, the springtime when foxes uh, maraud more you know, more often. And yeah, I feel really bad losing my chickens, but they were just little, little souls that used to peck around wherever I went.
0: I know, the chickens were amazing. And when we came to visit with my daughter, Grace, um, she was very excited about the, the chickens. And we had to tell her that there were no chickens. But she took it quite well.
1: Oh, i pleased. That's all right. That's a weight off.
0: <laughs> well, she was pleased with the cat anyway.
1: As we say, life goes on, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I know. It does. It does. When is the right time to die? Hello I'm Nairi and I'm Phil. We're two friends trying to answer that question.
1: For one of us it's theoretical and for the other, that's me, it's all too real.
0: In this series we'll follow Phil's journey living with an incurable and life-ending illness and unpack some of the key debates around assisted dying with some help from experts and campaigners.
1: I wanted the chance to have this discussion in the UK courts. I never got that chance but this is my story and this is my podcast.
0: Why are we here doing this, Phil? It's probably a good question to explore.
1: Well, that's the big question, I guess. Uh, Why are we here? I I guess because I find myself at uh, 50 years old, um, diagnosed some years ago with with motor neurone disease, a diagnosis that came kind of out of the blue um, with failing health and failing faculties, uh, staring at a future that looks really difficult and one that I do not want. So we're going to explore the issue of whether assisted dying should be allowed in society and what that would mean for me. If we did talk about it more, um, uh, we'd find that there are solutions in a debate that always leads to dead ends at the moment. And there is, a, there is a, a need and an opportunity to talk about this from the perspective of what it is like.
0: You're probably thinking, what is motor neurone disease? To help us unpack that, here's consultant neurologist, Rhys Roberts, to explain.
2: The motor neuron diseases is- often abbreviated to MND or ALS, are a group of life-limiting, incurable neurodegenerative disorders. MND is typically associated with the relentless, wasting and weakness of the muscles of the limbs, the inability to speak and swallow, and the inability to breathe, and in up to half of patients, a change in what we refer to as cognitive function, which can cause an alteration in a person's behavior, attitudes, and ability to process information. MND affects around 5,000 adults in the UK at any one time, mostly between the ages of 50 and 70. The underlying cause of MND in approximately 90% of patients remains unknown, but around 10% of people living with MND will have other affected family members. Median survival from symptom onset is said to range between two to three years. But the progression in each individual can vary with time from first symptom to death ranging from weeks to over 10 years until an effective treatment emerges the management is focused on maintaining quality of life by the input of specialist health professionals working as part of multidisciplinary teams
0: that's the cold hard medical outline of motor neuron disease When we recorded some conversations a few months ago, you took us back to the moment you were first diagnosed and we've got that that clip to listen to here.
1: After a a while of feeling a bit peaky, underpowered, unwell, I went to see a doctor and we did the usual tests at the GP and the GP said, you know what, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, And I said, you know what, you know what, doc, I think there is. And um, he said, well, I don't know where to look, and I don't know why. But I then said, well, how about we look at neurology? And um, I got a, referred to a neurologist, and they started running tests. And um, and then I went through about six, seven, eight months of further tests, and one thing was ruled out and another thing, other thing was ruled out, and slowly... Charlie my wife started to get more and more concerned whereas I thought well everything's been ruled out it must be okay but she'd read a bit more than I had and then one day in it was May May 2014 we went down to Adam Brooks after a battery of tests some nasty ones and um, saw a neurologist and uh, I guess if you walk into a waiting room or a, a therapy room and um, there's a guy um, with a polo neck shirt and a beard um, sat next to the, the consultant wearing a tag saying hospital counselling services. One should guess it's not going to be good news, and it wasn't good news. And, and you know, the um, the consultant hit me straight between the eyes. I mean, it was a pretty brutal diagnosis. The tests confirmed that as, as far as she was concerned, I had motor neurone disease. That means um, I could expect no more than two or three years um, to, to live on average, and that I should really now go home and think about the world and um, prepare for the end. We were both in the room. I think she had an idea of what was coming and I didn't. And I remember we, you know, we left that room kind of in silence, went back to the car. Um, it was a beautifully sunny May day in, in Cambridge, um, uh, stuffed one pound coin after another into the car parking machine and navigated our way home. And we made it all the way um, to the drive here before we broke down. And I know I said I had to go and call my mum, and um, yeah, then we had to go and pick up our girls from from primary school.
0: What's changed since then? Because lots changes in a short amount of time for you, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it can do. And I'm you know, I'm I'm progressing, as they say, um, slowly, relative, very slowly by disease standards. Um, I'm just about to chalk up year number seven, uh, starting in um, three weeks' time. That'll be the seventh anniversary of the diagnosis. So but I'm really fortunate to still be here. I'm really lucky to still be alive um, compared to the vast majority. But it, it becomes harder with kind of every month. So every month, sometimes even every week, I lose the capacity to do something and have to find an alternative means of doing something.
0: What were those first few hours like after you got that news? Did you feel like you were in the the kind of advert phase for the first few hours where nothing really made sense?
1: Yeah, kind of. I remember going into my greenhouse and watering the tomatoes um, uh, and worrying how I would call my mum and, you know, those those sorts of things. And, yeah, it it, it, it did kind of feel, I know it sounds like a cliche, sort of, as, as you might see it in an advert about, um, you know, for a cancer charity or, or something. I remember feeling uh, panicked, which I guess is another usual stage, really, really panicked about everything that would have to be done. And, I, and that's perhaps a, a business person's way of trying to turn it, you know, even one's demise into a project. You know, we needed a will, we needed powers of attorney, we needed to work out whether how we could, how much of our lives we could finance, you know, all that basic stuff. I wanted to understand what I could do to flatten the curve if there was anything. I wanted to research possible cures, even if they're outlandish. And unfortunately, I still had energy then. And I think about that and I think I was lucky to have it.
0: Do you track the anniversary since diagnosis? Has it become a kind of significant day in your calendar?
1: No, well, it's it's a day to forget, really. But I am now. I think this is the first time I'm really thinking that more than ever before. This is probably no my last spring or my the last time I'm seeing blossom on the trees or bluebells in the woods or whatever that is. That's very. It does make life quite quite poignant. And with time running out, I am beginning to count. In fact, I'm beginning to count months. Really, to be quite honest, I'm beginning beginning to count short periods of time.
0: And that's a change since last time we spoke.
1: I think it's probably with the onset of really noticeable breathing problems um, that's got me on on a ventilator part time. I think that is really existential. Yeah, you, you get chucked on a ventilator, you're being breathed for by a machine. And that that really makes you think about life, because obviously no breathing, no life, and most breathing that I've ever done in my life has been a subconscious thing so all of a sudden nearly all of nearly all of breathing has become conscious and and that is really suddenly feels um um what's the word you 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 sense the passing of of life and the passing of time through breath that is beginning to become a labor
0: how much time do you spend thinking about how ill you are that might sound silly but I'm trying to dig into kind of what your how much time you spend thinking about your diagnosis and stuff that's affecting you and what your kind of coping me- mechanisms are for when you do
1: think about that? To start with, when I was reasonably well, I, I thought I became really calm and accepting and patient. And um, I spent a few years thinking, well, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm stretching and doing yoga and I'm meditating a lot. And I'm feeling calm and I'm, I'm seeing the colours in the flowers. And I, I understand the beauty of the world and all that sort of stuff. And I sort of thought, well, maybe I've got this. Maybe I've got this kind of under control. But then the body has gone through a stage beyond which I can do almost nothing. And I felt this rising current of something I've had a lid on for a while just just kind of burst through the manhole cover of of, of my mind. I mean, as we speak now, it's a good example. I'm sat in a nice environment at my kitchen table um, in a chair. All is good, apart from the sun's come out. And the sun is beating down upon, upon me as we make this recording. And there's nothing I can do about it. What I would like to do is take my jumper off, uh, take my shoes off and draw the curtain. But I can't. And there's no one here. And it's just, it's just um, me and you over the ether. So it's, it's kind of living with that moment to moment discomfort. And you know, bearing in mind, there are people who have been profoundly disabled, much, well, much more disabled than me for much longer and have learned to live with this. Some of this is me learning how to deal with minor inconvenience and suffering. and uh, But I am struggling with that.
0: Do you think you've fully processed stuff
1: at this point? No, I'm not sure I fully process stuff now. I think, no, as a, as a 43-year-old kind of bloke, um, I hadn't processed much of it at all. It's just the crazy thing of leaving that room and feeling absolutely fine. I was absolutely fine apart from some twitching muscles and a slightly weak left thumb at the time. I just knew some awful things were happening and I was in the middle of a storm and uh, I had dependents, my our two girls who were um, just just kids and you know, my wife Charlotte and we needed to sort stuff out and needed to um, get things done that I wanted to do. It didn't actually feel very real despite the fact that I sort of embraced it um, and realized I was going to have to stop work and um, all sorts of stuff. It didn't really feel real for two or three years until I until I was forced to stop walking and until my hands wouldn't work. Um, then it be- began to feel really real, and it feels definitely real again now that the limbs have gone. But the, the kind of the core muscles and the breathing equipment is going wrong. That feels a different kind of real.
0: Do you think you'll ever get that? calm acceptance it's just having known you throughout my life you always would take control of a situation and jump up and yeah just just make stuff happen do you think it's particularly hard for you
1: I'm, you know you make me sound very alpha as well I do quite a lot of smiling through the agony of it all it's so it's, it's cheerful conversations with with friends and family and, and I think that helps as well and trying to buy my annoying adolescent children up um, and, um, by being mirthful. I think those those things sort of keep me going. But I think under the surface, there's quite a, a dark um, and, and bubbling bit of me that's really struggling. And it's quite difficult, actually. It's quite difficult to be really angry if you're tired. So there's, there's all these strange emotions of being really fatigued um, and really frustrated. Um, and and reaching a point where you're just kind of sadly simmering i mean i was just saying there was a a cat killing a rabbit just outside from the window i'm looking at um whilst we were recording earlier and i wanted to say stop just give us a second you know run outside separate the cat um, save the rabbit and um feel like i've done a good thing for the day but of course i can't and and those are the feelings of helplessness that that bring a lot of frustration that, that, that simmers
0: I remember the phone call that you made to me to tell me the news about your diagnosis and you said that you didn't want me to be too worried or too sad um, but that you had quite a serious um, diagnosis and I remember you telling me that it was motor neurons and you were just very factual you weren't very emotional and I remember just being completely stunned once once the seriousness of it kind of washed over I just didn't really know what to do with the information really I I, I don't know whether I reacted in the right way or what the right way is or whether it was typical how how did people react when you were when you were telling those first few people
1: yeah they, um generally like you but that's probably because it was some of it, it was in the, the delivery by me but i guess by the time you you know you've sobbed to, to members of your family about the situation and it becomes a repeat thing so i guess you know you you get on the phone speak to another friend speak to another colleague explain the situation move on and um and so yes i think it was during that time that we would have spoken and yeah i was think i think i was feeling a bit hard-nosed and sort of matter-of-fact about it and sort of making sure that people i wanted to know knew but without it becoming a grief fest
0: that definitely came across it was almost this is the factual situation um and i do not want any sympathy thank you <laughs> it was that that's definitely the message that i um that i kind of Took away, but it did feel like a uh, one of those moments where your sort of tummy falls out a little bit, and you like when you go over a hill.
1: You know, fun enough. It, you say um sympathy. It's not that. It's not that I didn't want sympathy, and if I no, it is that I didn't want sympathy, but I certainly didn't want pity, and also I didn't want any um, kind of reflected emotion, because the last thing you need when someone you know if you're feeling not good about yourself and you're worried about the future is good friends blubbing on the phone. You know, I, I, I sometimes see, um, I, you know, I've been to the odd funeral over the last few years and I kind of, you know, if the, if the grieving, uh, the, um, spouse is, um, outside the crematorium or, um, the church and they're being mobbed by, by people who are pouring their heart out to them, um, you know, uh, they're in floods of tears. I feel really sorry because it's not as if that person doesn't have enough of their own personal grief to deal with that day
0: so nobody mentioned i can't i can't wrap my head around that but i suppose we do it a little bit like when we come and you know when you when it's you and i talking it's different from when we're with other people and you kind of just ignore some really obvious stuff in a really british kind of way don't you
1: yeah yeah and purposely because the danger is and and, and also you know the, what well, the danger is you you sort of become a center of attention and you're i've always got the trumping thing you know that sort of thing when someone says, "Oh, you know, they're struggling a bit because they sprain their ankle." Yeah, and I can go, "Well, neither of my legs work," <laughs> and, and that's not a, that's not a cue to laugh, by the way.
0: You should uh, say that, Phil. You ought to say that to people.
1: Well, I know, but I mean, the, the danger is, you know, how 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 do you get into? it? So, what I mean is, I don't have any conversation because, you know, I, you know, I'm hardly going to say, you know, just look at my ankles and talk about your sprained ankle because. <laughs> It's just not, you know. So we end up not having. What I'm trying to say is, we end up not having a conversation. So, you know, the amount of gaffes that people make, and I would have been no different, is astonishing.
0: Have I ever made any gaffes?
1: Uh, no, no, I I don't think so. Not, I mean, I not that I think of. The thing is, it's a minefield. I think it's a minefield talking to someone who's poorly and um is naturally sensitive as well. So, it's really hard.
0: You say if you're not comfortable with this, but how on earth do you tell your children something like that? Particularly because they won't grasp everything about it.
1: Kids feel this sort of stuff through osmosis, anyway. And the we decided that we would tell them fairly soon after I was diagnosed, not straight away. But I think it was within a month or two. And we sat them one down one day after school and kind of had that sort of chat across the kitchen table, saying that something you know I I've been told by a doctor that um, something. Um, bad was going to happen to me that it was motor neurone disease that we didn't really want them to use those words or look them up um on the internet um but that was the disease the disease said that you know i would be getting worse and that i would die over a period of time and then i gave them the kind of white lie which i remember being so troubled about and it paining me so much for you know looking them in the eye and saying but i would be there until they were ladies and of course, you know that's the kind of word that, that children use. they were nine and eleven, and that in a way, I think I don't know i must I'll ask them um sometime soon whether that computed because I think in kids speak, that is I'll still be around until it's as far off as you need to be at the time. I guess it was a it was a big white lie because I had no idea whether I would be gone before they hit their teens. In fact, that was looking more likely, but I wanted them to believe that I could live longer and I, I would live longer.
0: If you could go back to that first period after you were diagnosed and and say something to Charlotte, what would the fill of today say to her?
1: Oh, I don't know about I really don't know. Um, you know I, I apologize to Charlotte all the time because I'm embarrassed about myself and, and um i'm what's the word I, I feel terribly for the way that her life has turned out as a result of, of mine. And um, none of us, neither of us planned for this. Neither of us would, of course, hope for it. And she's got a really raw deal out of this. You know, she said she'd stay with me in sickness and in health. And, and she is, but it's not what she would have wanted for her life. So I don't know um, what I would have, said, would have said now to Charlotte because it's, it's really hard. I mean, other than we kind of, we will get through. We will do this together, which we sort of do. And we sort of are.
0: What would you say to that, Phil, in that, in that short period after diagnosis, things that you could do differently?
1: Yeah, only myself. You know, the, this, the fantasies, the belief that it's all going to be all right, that you're going to be the jammy one, that, um, that it's going to be wrong, that the diagnosis is going to be, you know, be false. There'll be a mimic disease or a virus or someone who put your blood tests and filed them wrong. You know, those are all the things that I guess you hope for. And um, and none of that happened. That sort of belief that you'll you'll escape.
0: Since your diagnosis and everything changed, have you still been able to find those kind of lighter moments in life and smile and laugh?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if anything, it's felt like a license to be a bit irreverent and to do things that just are a bit more maverick than usual. So. So, yeah, I yeah, for sure We we have gone out. We have traveled places that we otherwise wouldn't. We have done stuff that we haven't. I you know I had a bit of time and energy and space so I've written two or three little books and um, enjoyed doing that which are themselves kind of light and uh, um so yes we we have we've done short breaks and long breaks and we have um just kind of enjoyed ourselves as a family as much as we can in the circumstances and I mean that the physical circumstances were getting harder but even 2 years ago you know, we made it to Amsterdam with me on my wheelchair and messed around there for um, three or four nights, and and kind of had fun as a family.
0: Have you got any memories, particularly really nice moments from this
1: period? I can't think of one in specifically, but I can think of it being the most colourful period of my life. Um, the certainly the previous the first you know five years of, of being well and it getting worse were the the period of life where I think we had we had a load of enjoyment and um it just felt very very bright and active and I felt very present in a lot of the things we did. You know, we um I just remember, we, you know, instead of going to Cyprus we'd say okay, let's go to North Cyprus and explore all the way up to the very top and into India and we've been to Africa and stuff that I probably wouldn't have done with the um the girls if there hadn't been this impetus. You know, we went round a, a bit of jungle in the Gambia with me on a micro scooter. It's just stuff that we wouldn't have done probably anyway. I felt a little bit egged on by the the need to um, not have a bucket list, but just to enjoy where enjoyment was available.
0: I wanted to ask you about my favourite topic.
1: Oh, not Becky. Yeah, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> how do I know? I know it's going to be about <laughs> Becky the carer. <laughs> it's enough, is it? it makes- yeah, I mean Becky the carer, That sounds that 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 sounds not very nice. But what are you going to ask me then, Nari? Go on. Well,
0: i was just going to ask how. <laughs> how I don't know why I'm so interested in this, but I was going to ask you how it's going because when we recorded a few months ago, you were just about to start the kind of personal care thing. So how's it going?
1: Personal care is going all right. I mean, I mean <laughs> how how intimate do we have to get? I I mean. Um, I've got this very nice and very professional carer called Becky, who arrives at nine thirty in the morning a couple of days a week, and and and, and I guess you'd say she showers me. But um, you know, it's, it's it's I don't know. I mean, I don't know where to place this experience because I haven't got much frame of reference around it. At one end of the spectrum, it's not very erotic, and at the other, it's not very interesting. I mean, <laughs> I talk about her primary school kids. I talk about my secondary school kids she tells me about her two Staffordshire Bull Terriers and, and we, we just kind of, we get on with it and, and all the time, of course, she's got clothes on and I'm naked and she's trying to um, apply sort of ointments and, and lotions to me and stuff like that, which I've got loads now. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's, And um, yeah, that's that's sort of how it happens. But the, the, I guess the thing is that surprises me, it's all on the clock. So if you kind of, if you pay for an hour of caring, you really need your hour of caring so it's a bit like you know it's kind of like, like a ready, steady, cook kind of version of getting a shower.
0: <laughs> that is quite an image. So what you mean they the, like the, the timer is set? Does she literally bring a timer?
1: Yeah, literally. So there's a, there's a little um, key fob that she signs in on. That's like the equivalent to an electronic clock in card. I've got an hour. We're going to use the hour and off we go. So you know it is. It does feel like it's all done in a, as as a race, which is which is okay for showering. It's less good because occasionally Becky comes down and does. Um, gives me lunch when.
0: That's
1: kind of that's panic beans on toast. Yeah, and that's, that, that's a bit of a tricky experience, and it's one that I don't enjoy.
0: As a whole, you were dreading this. Is it better than you thought it was going to be? Yeah,
1: yeah, I guess it is. Thank you very much, Niree, for, for your interest. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of it's it's strangely acceptable. If you and you know, it's a strange thing. It sort of becomes a social norm, doesn't it? She will be telling me, you know, whatever, that she's been to a car boot sale. I'll be saying that the grouting in the bathroom is doing. Yeah, you know it's just, it's just the usual sort of conversations about, about life and whether the A6006 has got road, road work on it. <laughs> If you want of a mental image, just think of me of a big toddler, but with more words.
0: <laughs> that is an image that I really don't think I need.
1: Well, that's it. uh, It's strange, isn't it? It's it's that kind of seven ages of man stuff. I'm increasingly, you know, needing to be treated like a baby. And um, that's, you know, there is. You look at it and I I kind of sometimes look at it and can't help but smile. (laughs) You you know, Naira, you are uh, one of the few people that I talk uh, in depth about this too. I've got all sorts of um, uh, friends from different kind of walks of life. But with most, I struggle. I don't have the relationship where I can talk about this sort of stuff. So we end up having noisy conversations about, I don't know, whether their catalytic converter's been nicked. Yeah, um, but, you know, the the fact that I've moved on to a ventilator, we pass over because that's just embarrassing.
0: In Volume 1 of this podcast, we've got to know my friend Phil a little better. We'll do more of that next time and explore the issues surrounding assisted dying, the legal side of things, the concerns some people have, and where in the world allows assisted dying and how it works there. See you soon.